Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Two sermon texts this morning, each one brief, one from Colossians 3 and then one from 1 Peter 3. Please give your attention to God's word. 1 Colossians 3, verses 17 through 19. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be, courage, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that, the, that ye are therefore thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have called us into your presence this morning and that you have given us your word and your Holy Spirit. So we cry out to you now, Father. We know that apart from your power working, this word will go out, but will go unapplied. And so we want it applied to our lives. We want it to meet us right where we are. And so we ask for your spirit to be poured out upon us so that we might know Christ and him crucified and know his grace, particularly in our homes, in our marriages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us are getting our homes and vehicles ready for winter weather. So why not our marriages? It's easy to fall into ruts and habits that just seem normal when in fact they are wearing on us in funny ways or harming our families in ways we do not realize. It's easy to get going in life and, and life is just life. And you don't know any different, you don't see any different, it's just what's normal and you don't realize that that clicking noise that your car is making, that clunking noise, that, that's not normal. It's not supposed to do that. Um, something's not right. And likewise, many poor habits leave us incredibly vulnerable when trials and difficulties hit. Uh, you don't want to get stuck and then realize that something was wrong. That's the reason for doing checkups periodically, doing tune-ups periodically. You want to catch the problems if possible, before you get stuck somewhere, before the storm hits. And the question is not whether you will face trials, the only question is when. And will your marriage be ready when the storms come? So we want our marriages to be winter weather ready. And, um, and we want them ready for every weather, um, but especially for the challenges. I remember when uh, our third born uh, was, was born, she was premature and was in the NICU, and one of the things that the hospital would do as a matter of course was make you, you'd sit down with the social worker that the hospital would provide for you, and, and the social worker, I remember telling us that statistically, um, uh, the, the, the rate of divorce skyrocketed 
if, if a family had a child in the NICU for an extended period of time. And so, you know, this is an unbelieving woman as far as I know, um, just pointing out statistically, storms come, hardships come, whether it's economic crisis or health crisis or crisis in your family or what have you. Um, these, um, it, it's not, God's grace is readily available to us in every circumstance, praise be to God. Um, but that's not the moment in which you want to be doing the, the major checkup. Um, it's best to do the checkup when it hasn't started uh, raining yet, when it hasn't started snowing yet, and when it hasn't actually frozen yet. We want to do the checkup sooner than that. So um, center, central to Christian marriage is Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. In 1 John chapter 1, John says that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This is what it means to walk in the light. It means to have fellowship with one another, have fellowship with God, have fellowship with one another. This is the center of being in Christ. It's having this fellowship, this friendship, this communion, um, this community. But this Christian fellowship is not magical. It's not automatic. It doesn't just magically happen. John tells us in 1 John 1, 7, that this happens as Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. So this is not a magical thing, and John proceeds to explain that this has everything to do with regularly confessing our sins. So even the blood of Jesus cleansing us is not a magical, automatic thing. He goes on to say, and if you say you have no sin, you deceive, our, you deceive yourselves, the truth is not in you, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That cleansing blood of Jesus happens through the process of confession of sin. So it has everything to do with regularly confessing our sins, and the flip side of this is regularly forgiving those who confess their sins to us. And so Jesus points us out in Matthew 18 and Luke 17, if your brother comes to you and sins against you, how many times do you have to forgive him? Seven times, is that enough? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. You can't count that high. And this is, this is figured into just the law of love when you think about um, if, if we want to be clean, we want to walk in the light, and our task is to go to confess our sins, to others, it stands to reason that what you want them to do when you say, honey, please forgive me, son, please forgive me, daughter, please forgive me, coworker, please forgive me, I sin, please forgive me. The answer you want is, I forgive you, <laughs> right? And, and so the law of love is, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And, and how many times do you want to be forgiven? <sighs> I can't count that high, right? So, so the day-to-day -day work of Christian fellowship, the way we walk in the light, the way we walk in fellowship with one another is these two central things, confessing sin and forgiving one another regularly in an ongoing way. This is the secret of Christian fellowship in general. So this applies to every relationship, workplace environment, relationship with your kids, relationship with extended family, relationship with neighbors. It applies to all Christian fellowship, but it applies to Christian marriage in particular. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Paul said in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or de deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And that's the verse that leads right into wives and husbands. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and walking in such a way as to inherit a blessing, which is what 1 Peter 3 culminates in, the text that we 
just read a moment ago, having both of those things in mind, I wanna do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks, I wanna walk in such a way as to inherit blessing, doing those things are ways of describing Christian fellowship. Do you want Christian fellowship with your brother, your sister? You want Christian fellowship in your home? You want Christian fellowship with your wife, with your husband? Well, what that is, is doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is doing everything in the name of the Lord, your Savior. Right? That's what Jesus, Jesus means, Savior. And when Mary gave the name to her child, it's, it's because he will save his people from their sins. So to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is to do everything in the name of the Lord, your Savior who saves you from your sins. Which means you walk along your life and you recognize that you need a Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you need a savior to save you from your sins. This is just central to being a Christian. Lord, every time you say Jesus, Lord Jesus, you're saying, I need a savior. I have a sin problem, I need a savior. This is central to being in Christ. This is central to being a Christian. So being a Christian doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, well, you guys, that was pretty good. Or nine o'clock in the morning. Um, right, so right, being a Christian doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. Being a Christian doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. Being a Christian means you know what to do about sin, right? Because you've met Jesus the Savior. You don't meet Jesus the Savior who saves you for your sins and say, thanks, that's great. I'm gonna be just going about my life now. Meeting Jesus your Savior is to recognize that you're a sinner and you need saving from your sins. To walk with Jesus the Savior is to walk with the one who can constantly help you, can deal with you, can cleanse you, can wash you clean. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. It means you know what to do about sin. The difference between a clean house and a messy house is that in the clean house, they pick up. Right? Ta-da. Right? This, is, this is the deal. The difference between the clean house and the messy house is that in the clean house, they pick up. It's not that in the clean house, magically, they make no dirty dishes or no trash, and they never spill anything. That's not true, right? That's just not the way it is at all. In a clean house, they're busy cleaning up. They're busy picking up. Confession of sin and forgiveness is like taking out the trash and doing the dishes. It's just what you do. It's just what you do. You, didn't, you, don't, you don't say, ah, there's a dirty dish, ah. And, and you know, oh no, there's trash, what happened? Something terrible has happened, there's trash. No, this, this, is, this is life, this is normal life. You take out the trash, you do the dishes, you do the laundry, this is what we do. For Christians to act shocked and befuddled when sin happens is like being surprised when the two-year-old drops a meatball on the floor. Guys, that's just what two-year-olds do, right? <laughs> if you're a new parent in the room, I'm just gonna give you this secret. <laughs> They're gonna spill it, right? They just will, right? and you know, yay for sippy cups and all the rest, but that's just what they do, right? You give them food, and the next thing, it just, they just drop it, right? That's what they do. They're learning about gravity and such, right? And you, you give them the, the cup of milk, you give them the cup of juice, and they're two, and what are they going to do? They're going to spill it. That's just what they do. And so for a parent of a two-year-old to freak out, ah, they've dumped it, they've poured it out. Well, hello, that's what they do, right? They're two. They're still trying to work this whole thing out. Like they've got a body and fingers and 
all the rest of it. And yes, they need to learn to rule their bodies well and they need to have self-control and all the rest of it. But this is just what they do. Remember, there's no sin so bad that you can't make it worse. Right? There's no sin so bad that you can't make it worse by denying it, by trying to hide it, by lying about it, by blustering about it, by blaming for it. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you dropped the meatball on the floor. I can, no, you can believe it. There are two. Why, and now, now your mess is bigger than that mess, right? Your bad attitude about the mess you have to clean up is bigger than the mess of just cleaning it up. And this applies across the board. We're Christians, which means that we have a savior, a savior who saves us from our sins, which means that we, it's not that there's no sin, it's that we know what to do about it. We know that Jesus has come to die for our sins. He's died to make us clean. And we say, we're Christians. Oh, there's a mess. Oh, there's another sin that Jesus died for. Ha, who would have known? Right? But Jesus died for that. Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. So there's no sin that's so bad that you can't make worse by denying it, by trying to hide it, by lying about it. Or just, you know, it's just stuff. Let's just put a little washcloth over this dirty dish. Maybe no one will notice. No, it's still there. Or sweeping it under the carpet. Maybe in some, I let, let's stuff all the garbage bags into a closet, right? It's still there, right? And why are you being silly, right? You're a Christian. To be, to be named, to name the name of Christ is to say, I need a savior who takes away my sins. I need a savior to take out my garbage. I make garbage. I make messes. I drop stuff. I spill. That's what happens here. We need a savior. That's the difference between a Christian home and a non-Christian home. So, just confess it and forgive it quickly. Take out the trash. Take out the trash. And remember, practice makes perfect. Right? Practice makes perfect, and the question is, what are you practicing? Right? What are you practicing? Every, every coach, athletic coach, or uh, musical instructor knows that it's not enough just to practice lots. Or you could be practicing all week long and doing the layup wrong. Right, you could be practicing all week long and doing the fingering wrong on that stringed instrument, and you say, you come in and say, yeah, just teacher, I practice all week long, all hours, 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 and he says, great, you did it wrong. Right now you've got to unlearn that bad habit and relearn it the right way. So it's not just enough to be practicing hard. You could be practicing hard something that's not helping you. It's not actually doing you any good. And so we want to obey Jesus, and we do what Jesus says to do, and he says, confess your sin, Honestly, completely, don't make excuses, own it, and ask for forgiveness, and forgive gladly from the heart. Do that over and over again. Why? Because you're a Christian, and you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. You do everything in the name of the Lord, your Savior. So remember, practice makes perfect, and pay attention to what you're practicing. And, what, and the other thing that goes along with that is that that means that things will get easier, right? When you've been practicing right for a long time, you don't think about it anymore, Right? Those of you that play musical instruments, you can play something really fancy and say, well, how do you do that? And you say, well, I practiced a lot. Right? I, you don't really know. At some point, you stop thinking about it. If you're still thinking about it, you're not, you don't know it. But as soon as you stop thinking about it and the little dots on the page make your fingers do things magically, right? then you've practiced perfectly. You've practiced perfect. And it's the same thing with learning to confess your sins and forgive one another quickly. Uh, you you, you want to get good at that. You want, you want to practice it such that you know how to own your sin. You're not making excuses anymore. You go quickly to the person you've sinned against. Please forgive me, honey. Please forgive me. And, yep, you're, you're forgiven. When you practice like that, not only will you, will you by God's grace, um, actually sin less, 
because you'll be putting that sin to death, but you'll be able to work through it much faster, much more quickly, because you've been practicing rightly. You've been, you've been practicing exactly what Jesus said to do, and it, it's better. So confession and forgiveness, what's, what's really important to recognize, though, is that confession and forgiveness flow from fellowship with God. Confession and forgiveness flow from fellowship with God. We are to forgive one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. That's the, that's the fundamental example. We forgive one another because we have been forgiven in Christ. So this Christian fellowship that we are to practice in our homes and in our marriages in particular is to flow from fellowship with God, not the other way around. You can't try to get fellowship with God by being in fellowship with other people. If you're doing it that way, you're gonna break stuff. You're trying to ask your friends, your spouse, your husband, your wife, your children, if you're trying to get fellowship with God by being in fellowship with the people around you, you're going to break them. You're going to use them, you're gonna abuse them um, because they are not made to give you cosmic peace. They're just people. They can't give you peace. They can't give you fellowship with God. They're just fallen people. And so when you look to them and you say, if I just get this right, then maybe God will be happy with me, you've got it upside down and backwards. Fellowship with your wife, fellowship with your husband, fellowship with anyone else in this world has to flow from fellowship with God. At the same time, there, these are, fellowship with one another, is a prerequisite for enjoying fellowship with God. So you can actually, in fact, have fellowship with God, but then there's some kind of log jam. You have fellowship with God, God says, I've forgiven you, you're forgiven, you know that peace, and then you walk out and you say, I just don't know if I can forgive my dad. I just don't know if I can forgive my wife. I, I forgive a lot of people, but not my husband. I, can't, I just can't forgive that. And so you have a log jam. You have forgiveness with God. You have fellowship with God, but you're not letting it bleed into all the other relationships around you. You're, you're somehow there's something gunked up there. You're not willing to do that. And so when that happens, you're not enjoying fellowship with God. It's possible to have fellowship with God and not enjoy it. it, it it's, 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 it's messing you up. You're grieving the spirit, and so the spirit is grieving you. When, when David didn't confess his sins in Psalm 32, it was like rottenness in his bones. It wasn't like he had lost fellowship with God. It was the fellowship with God that was making him feel so awful because he had sinned and he hadn't made it right. And so it, while it's true, the confession and forgiveness flow from fellowship with God, they are also prerequisites for enjoying fellowship with God. Do you want to enjoy fellowship with God? then confess your sins and be right with one another. That's how this thing works. So li listen to this, this is Matthew 5. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, anything against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. You cannot come into church to fellowship with God while being out of fellowship with other believers especially your spouse. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't come into church if you remember someone has something against you, right? You're, you've pulled into the parking lot and you're getting ready to go in church and there's something not right. Jesus says, be late, leave it there, right? Don't bring your tithe, don't bring your offering, don't bring your praise and your worship, don't bring it if you're out of fellowship. Go make it right first, you're not going to be able to enjoy real fellowship with God if you're out of fellowship with your wife or anyone else. Paul says 
that when there, when there are divisions within the church, whatever we're doing with the bread and wine, it is not the Lord's Supper. For 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 20. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, such that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. You might be passing bread and wine around. You might be eating bread and wine. You might be going through the, it's not the Lord's Supper. If there are divisions among you, if there are divisions among you, it's not the Lord's Supper. How much more so is that the case if there are divisions among those relationships which proclaim a particular kind of unity, a marriage? We are married. We are one flesh. We are husband and wife. That's who we are. And you walk into here out of fellowship. Whatever you're doing, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. Better to be 15 minutes late and actually participate in church than to arrive on time only to pretend to. Right? Better to be late than, and actually participate in church than to arrive on time and only pretend to. This is why Peter warns husbands to honor their wives so that their prayers be not hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. It may be that Peter is saying that harsh husbands won't know how to pray or won't want to pray, but it seems more likely that Peter is saying that God will only listen to a man as well as he listens to his wife. Do you want me to listen to you like that? I mean, to listen to you the way that you've considered your wife's input. Okay, very well then. Have fun talking to yourself. Right? You need to be honoring your wife, listening to her, so that your prayers be not hindered. Again, the point is not that you're not necessarily, you don't have any fellowship with God. The, fact, the point is, is that you're not enjoying that fellowship with God. Do you want me to answer your prayers? Do you want me to listen to you and, and, and be sympathetic to your needs? Well, how sympathetic are you being to your wife's needs? How compassionate are you being to her? How carefully are you listening to her? Let that be the rule. The same principle should be applied to any sort of fellowship gathering. If that's the case with church, where we walk in and we share the Lord's Supper, we walk in and share fellowship with God, and Jesus says, if you're not in fellowship, leave your gift, go make it right, then come back. Don't celebrate the Lord's Supper like that. Make it right. Don't let there be divisions among you. If that's the case with church, how much more so should it be the case um, with the rest of our fellowship gatherings, dinners and parties and so forth? Don't pretend fellowship with others while being out of fellowship yourselves. I think this is one of the places where the devil likes to get in. The devil likes to catch us when we're, um, we're, we're maybe, we're, we're just, our eye's not on the ball. We're about ready to walk into a party. We're about ready to have somebody over for dinner. And the, the devil likes to creep in right there. You've invited, you know, you're, you're driving over to somebody's house. You pull up in the driveway. And right as you turn the car off, somebody says something. And something's off. Uh-oh. And you see them waving from the window. And you're like, oh, what do you do? Right? You don't go into the party like that. You wave back, smile, and sit there, right? Better to be five minutes late, better to be 15 minutes late, better to be five minutes awkward than the whole evening a lie. But then walk in there and pretend that you're in fellowship and not be able to share anything real, right? And not only that, what are you practicing? You're just practicing hypocrisy. You're practicing being okay being out of fellowship, You're practicing being okay with lying. Leave your gift. It's more important to be in fellowship than to be on time. It's more important to be in fellowship than to, to, you know, than to not be awkward for five minutes. 
Or maybe it's on the flip, right? You have people coming over, and there you are. You're bustling around, getting things ready. The company's coming, and all of a sudden, somebody says something, does something, ding dong, right? Right then. You know, you just want to freeze everything, but you can't. There they are. What do you do? Do you open the door and say, hi, everything's wonderful. Come on in. You liar. No, you don't. Don't. Now you go, open the door, welcome in, grab a glass of water, glass of wine, something here, have a seat. We will be right with you just a second. And you run back to the back room and you make it right quickly. And then you walk out and you actually share real Christian fellowship with those guests. And you say, but, but won't that be weird? Yeah, sure it'll be weird, but it will be truth, right? It'll be real love though, rather than lies, and so too often we sacrifice, we, we, want, we, we don't want it to be awkward, and we, we sacrifice on the altar of awkwardness real Christian fellowship. Right? But awkwardness is not your God. <laughs> Jesus is your God. Jesus, your Savior. Right? He's your God. So you serve him, and who cares what it looks like? Who cares that it's funny looking? They'll, be, they'll survive for five minutes on the couch with a glass of water. They will. It's more important, leave your gift. Leave your gift, be in fellowship. Don't pretend fellowship with others while being out of fellowship yourselves. Another thing about fellowship. Understand deep in your bones the difference between being out of fellowship and not having the exact same opinion about everything. Okay, turns out marriage is between two different people. Ta-da, you're different. That's, that's, that's what marriage is. Marriage is not this magic mind blend and, and now everything's just magically harmonious and you all have the exact same thoughts and opinions about everything. That doesn't happen. You must not go to bed angry at your spouse or anyone for that matter, Ephesians 4.26. So that would be being out of fellowship. You must not be angry. There may be no grievances. There may, no, may not be any bitterness, resentment. That would be out of fellowship. You can't go to bed like that. But sometimes you really do need to go to bed and get a full night's sleep before you'll be able to think and communicate your various convictions about which math curriculum is the most reformed. Right? Or whatever, right? Or whatever it was. And this is what happens sometimes. You, you know, you're like, well, we, we want to be in fellowship, right? You can be in fellowship and not have figured it all out yet. You can be in fellowship and still have discussions to make, right? You, maybe you haven't even had kids yet and you're worried about the math curriculum. You know, let's get the kids first, okay? You can sleep on it and you can talk about it again in the morning. Don't treat it like it's a fellowship issue. You say, but it's a really big deal. It's about whether we're gonna baptize them or not. It's about whether, you know, whether we're gonna do the Christian school or the home school. It's what, okay, fine. But be in fellowship. being in fellowship is the only way you're gonna actually be able to figure it out. So be in fellowship, but the other thing to recognize is that some of these things just take time to discuss. They take time to, to um, figure out, and that's okay. You can be in fellowship and have different convictions. You can, have, you can be in fellowship and have different opinions. At the same time, we are called to pursue one mind. We are called to pursue like-mindedness, and over time, you should be gaining on it. On the one hand, you have some, um, frequently this happens with on the newly or wed side of things, um, there can be a certain kind of concern about fellowship, and so there's a current, uh, an overzealous concern that we think everything the same right this minute, or else maybe we're not in fellowship. That's not true. 
You can be in fellowship and you can work things out over time. Trust God. He's good. He brought you together. He'll lead you to like-mindedness. But on the flip side, sometimes as you've been married for many years, you can mistake having differences of opinion and different differences of personality for, for just not being too uptight about um, unity of mind. When in fact, you're actually not in fellowship. Right? You, can, you can get into these habits of saying, well, we just disagree about stuff. We just have different personalities. And, and so we just, yeah, we don't really agree a lot. But it's not like we're not in fellowship when in fact, you're not in fellowship. Do you know the difference? Do you know the difference all the way down? Does your wife know the difference? Do you know the difference between those two things? Yes, it's true. You don't have to think the exact same opinion about everything immediately. But you must be in fellowship. And you may not make excuses about your failure to be in fellowship by just saying, well, we're just really different people and we come from really different backgrounds. Fine, that's your assignment from God, but you must be in fellowship. Do you understand the difference? Do you really get the difference all the way down in your bones? So don't be threatened by differences of opinion or perspective. The glory of heterosexuality is the glory of difference. That's what that word hetero means. It's the glory of difference. Some of our differences are sexual, some are personality, others are cultural or experiential, but marriage is signing up to live with someone different from you. This is a blessing, an enormous blessing, if received in faith and obedience. So don't be threatened or alarmed at different perspectives, and at the same time, pursue like-mindedness. Pursue one mind, pursue unity. So husbands, Honor your wives, honor their opinions, listen to their input. It wasn't good for you to be alone. It wasn't good for you to be alone, and this implies that you needed the input. You needed the feedback. You needed the, um, that, um, that friendship. You needed that kind of sharpening. And wives, recognize that you signed up to follow this man's lead. You must give your input respect, respectfully, and then, like Trumpkin, know the difference between giving counsel and taking orders. Now, marriage should be full of sweet fellowship. Marriage should be full of sweet fellowship. Review the descriptions of Christian fellowship surrounding some of the particular commands for husbands and wives. So I was, in both of the texts that I read this morning, I read several of the surrounding verses to underline this fact. It's, it's not as though Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives um, uh, in, in just some sort of list of do's and don'ts. The instructions given to husbands and wives are smack dab in the middle of exhortations about Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. So you have this in 1, uh, 1 Peter 3. Right after the instruction to wives and husbands, finally, all of you be of one mind, have compassion one with another, love as brethren, be pitiful, courteous, render, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing ye are therefore thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. And likewise, in Colossians 3, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him, and, and just the verses previous to that are talking about the love we owe one another, the compassion we, we owe one another, the kindness we owe one another. A Christian marriage must not be characterized by bickering, arguing, raised voices, eye-rolling, biting words, sarcasm, or frustration. 
Your marriage should not be characterized by those things. You say, no, well, we're just, we're Italian. No, I don't care, whatever. No, no, no. I, you know, God bless the Italians, but no, right? You, no, your, your, a Christian marriage should not be characterized by bickering, arguing, raised voices, eye-rolling, biting words, sarcasm, or frustration. If lengthy chunks of your week with your husband, with your wife, are characterized by any of these things, that's sub-Christian. That's not the glory that you're called to. That's not Christian fellowship. Your marriage should not be characterized by these things. A Christian marriage is singled out to represent Christ and his bride, Ephesians 5. You know the text well. It is singled out, a relationship singled out to present the gospel. It's like Jesus and the church. This is what it represents. It's to be characterized by mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearing, forgiveness, love, like-mindedness, compassion, courtesy, and blessing. Is that what your marriage is characterized by? There's a tape recording of you and your wife, of you and your wife and the kids, you and your wife in your home, you and your wife in the car. There's a tape recording of it. What's it characterized by? Is it characterized by mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearing, forgiveness, love, like-mindedness, compassion, courtesy, and blessing. If you say, well, we don't argue in public at all, but your home is frequently a place of argument, that's what we call hypocrisy. That's what we call hypocrisy. And your children can see the difference. Your children can see the difference and you're telling lies to them. You're telling lies to one another. You're saying we can pretend, this is okay, it's all right to lie. You're telling lies about what it, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to, to have Christian fellowship. You're telling lies about what matters, about what God sees, about what marriage is like. Not a few kids grow up in so-called Christian homes and want nothing to do with that sort of thing by the time they leave. They say, yeah, I don't want that. Right, where you pretend to be all squeaky clean at church and you pretend to do the, the PDGs and you pretend to do that in choir and then you go home and you bicker and you argue. Oh, sure, yeah, there was, it was, you never got the divorce. You never actually found any, you know, it was never on fire, fire, but man, what a horrible place to be. But a Christian marriage should be one of the most striking things for unbelievers to see. Christian marriage should be one of the most striking things that your children see, right? If nothing else, what they're seeing in front of them all day long is the way, way their dad interacts with their mom, the way their mom interacts with their dad. And, and the thing that they should see is something that's beautiful and glorious. And if they don't understand the gospel yet, they, they say, I don't get it yet, but I want what they have. And they're being told all day long, this is because of Jesus. 
This is because of the cross and the resurrection. This is because of his grace. This is because we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means we need forgiveness all day long. A Christian marriage should be one of the most striking things for unbelievers to see. Two very different people who are strong and intelligent, who deeply respect one another and love being with one another. That's the gospel in marriage. That's what they see. And, and one, of the, one of the wonderful things about the world we live in is that God is making this starker and starker by the minute. Right? Unbelievers have gotten to the point where like, why would we even get married? That's dumb. And there's a point in which you say, well, yeah, if you don't know Jesus, it kind of is. Right? There's a, why would we do that to ourselves? Right? We're, we're, we're sinners, we're different, we might change our minds, exactly. But if you have Christ, you make marriage look good. You make marriage look glorious. You say, how do you do that? How do you get along with your wife like that? How do you, you never say anything about your husband. How do you do that? Jesus, right? Jesus. Why is homosexuality a plague in our culture? Why would you want to marry someone so different from yourself? You see? There's, I mean, there's sin and blindness and all of it. But there's a practical aspect of like, why would you want to live with someone so different from you? Why not just marry someone a lot more similar to you? Well, if you haven't seen the glory of two very different people loving one another and walking together in the light of Jesus, then yeah, that, that's a fair objection. And so Christian marriage should be one of the standing examples, one of the standing illustrations, one of the standing proclamations that you were made for this glory, the glory of Christian marriage, which is only possible through Jesus. So what did you sign up for? Husbands, you signed up to learn how to love one woman well. This is what you're commanded to do. In order to do this, you must be a student of your wife. This implies you don't understand her. Can I get an amen? At least you don't understand her completely, right? You're getting there, hopefully, but you must begin to. And very closely related to this, you must not grow bitter at her or resent her weakness or the difficulty it is for you to learn to do this. But you must honor her, think highly of her, speak graciously to her and about her. The model for this kind of love is Jesus. And this means that studying your wife does not mean giving her everything she asks for. Studying your wife does not mean giving her everything she asks for. If Jesus gave, everything, gave us everything we asked for, we'd all be doomed. In this is love, not that we knew what we needed, but that God knew what we needed and sent his son for our sins. Husbands, you must love your wives like that with joy. Wives, your task is to submit to your own husbands and to let them love you like Christ loves the church. Your temptation is the, in this will be to resent their faltering attempts to love you. Your temptation will be to resent their faltering attempts to love you rather than respecting the great difficulty it is to actually love you biblically. Recognize that there's more than a little Hollywood in your hearts that you still need to get rid of. While a real man imitating the real love of Jesus is certainly courteous, it is courteous. It's also deeply offensive to many modern sensibilities. So do not look sideways. 
Do not look in the books or in the movies. Do not look at the other men in this room or the other marriages around you. Look at your man and respect him in the Lord. Look at your man and respect him in the Lord. Look to Jesus, look to his word, and look to your man. The Lord gave you that man, and despite his real weaknesses and sin, he is the one God has instructed you to love. Respect that. Honor that. Submit to him in the Lord with joy. And all this remember, that's only possible to do any of these things if you have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing you from all sin. If you have been set free to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, living that, living that you might inherit a blessing, then this is good news. This is good news. And if you say, but I've not been doing it right. I've been doing it wrong, right? Well, then start now, right? Start now. Jesus bled and died for your failures all the way up to this point, all the way up to this point. All the, all the times you've been saying, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing, and you had no idea what you were doing. And all the times in which you were saying, I am submitting, I am submitting, and you weren't doing anything of the kind. Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died for that blindness, that hard-heartedness. Jesus died for it all. How do you pick up a messy room, right? Every one of us, you've had the kid, you walk in the room like, ah, I can't do it. I haven't been picking up for weeks or months or years, right? I can't do it. Let's just burn it. Right? What do you do? You pick up the pieces right in front of you and you put it away. That's what you do. And then you pick up the next piece and you believe that Jesus' grace is for all of it. You say, this is too big. Right, it's too big for you. That's why we're Christians. And you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? This little piece here, I'm gonna pick it up in the name of the Lord Jesus and I'm gonna put it away, right? And guess what? You might not be able to see it, but that mess just got one piece smaller. And that's good. That's good news. Jesus will walk you through this. So what mess do you need to pick up? Pick it up. In the name of the Lord Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus, your Savior, the one who died for your sins. Don't say, I don't need him. I don't need to pick up this. You have a mess to pick up. Yes, you do. Right? You're a Christian. What's that mess? Pick it up in the name of the Lord Jesus because he died for you. He died for that mess. He died to hold you tight in the middle of all of it and to carry you to the end. Amen. Father, we commit all this to you in Jesus' name, knowing that it's it's far bigger and messier than we even think or know. Father, thank you for the faithful marriages represented in this room. And thank you for the marriages that have, um, have not been faithful. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for all of it. And that even in those marriages where you've granted us faithfulness, there are still messes to pick up. There are still things to put right. We thank you that Jesus is sufficient for all of it. And so we cry out to you for more grace for all of it. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the great recoveries of the Protestant Reformation was a restoration of the Lord's Supper to the people of God. Prior to the Reformation, it was relatively rare for lay people to partake of the Lord's Supper. And when they did, they usually only had a little wafer of bread, but no wine. Most of the action of the supper, the mass, was in the spectacle, watching the elaborate rituals of the priests as they partook up front. Since they believed that the crucifixion of Jesus was literally repeated in the mass, they believed that watching the Mass was something like seeing Jesus crucified, and somehow the mere act of seeing made them right with God. But it is not at all enough to merely see Jesus up front. Many of you young parents have probably had the experience of having to explain to your toddler that the pastor is not God or Jesus. 
but you need to know that the instinct that your toddler has is not so foreign or silly as you might think. Plenty of people come to church week after week, and even though they would never say that their pastor is God or Jesus, if a recording of their thoughts could be played out loud, it would become clear that they are not communing with the actual God of heaven. They are just doing and saying religious things in a gymnasium, which is basically the same thing as thinking the man up front is God. It's not enough to see this gospel. It's not enough to mouth the words. You need this gospel in your mouth and down in your bones. And in order for that to happen, you need to know that you need it. You need it to. So let me say it plainly. This meal is for the broken. This meal is for the hungry. This meal is for the sick. This meal is for all the sinners. This meal is for those who have failed and failed again. This meal is for people who don't measure up, who aren't good enough, who know that unless the God of heaven reaches down, they are utterly lost. This meal is for those who know that all of that is true and all they have is rags and faith in Jesus alone. That's what we're doing here. So come, eat, drink, and believe, and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him you have provided all that we need, and in him we have all things. Blessed be God forever and ever. Amen. Whether you are still preparing to be married, whether you've just recently got married, been married a long, long time, or are no longer married, whatever relationship status you have and whatever other relationships you have, the first thing you should get, the first thing you should want is to recognize that fellowship with man is no good unless you first have fellowship with God. And so no matter what it is that you're looking at, whatever the mess is, wherever the pieces are that you need to pick up, whatever the dishes that need to be done, first look to Christ. First look to Jesus. First look to him and find in him strength for whatever he calls you to. And receive with believing hearts the blessing of your God. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and even God our Father, which hath loved us and have given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work, and amen.